What up, guys? Welcome back to part two of this amazing conversation with urologist and pelvic surgeon Dr. Rina Malik. And if you thought we covered it all on sex and the bedroom in part one, well, we were just getting started. Now, Dr. Rina has even more knowledge to drop on us so we can have more pleasure, more orgasms, and ultimately better, more beautiful relationships. She is debunking the lies we've been told about sex and also addresses the facts. Like, for instance, is bigger actually better? Do you get loose if you have too much sex? And she's also shedding the light on important sexual health misconceptions that are setting us up for failure in the bedroom. We also cover why mediocre sex is actually a good thing. Yes, you heard me right, why it's a good thing. And why sex toys is just like a microwave. So, yes, you heard me right. So let's dive in, guys, and let's get back to this episode. I'm your host, Lisa Billu, and you're listening to Women of Impact. Well, one of my friends um, in our early 20s, because I'd never heard of this, and that's why I really want to talk about everything, because it's like, if we don't almost know, sometimes it can be very surprising. And my friend had that moment where she was, in, you know, dating this guy. They finally decided to sleep together. And she said it was less than two inches. And she was like, I didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed. I was like, because she then felt uncomfortable, you know, because she didn't expect it. She'd never heard of a micropenis before. And so then he started. So she was like, I, I just faked an orgasm because I didn't want him to feel bad. Anyway, and so it became this whole thing, right, where she was just like, in shock, didn't know how to handle it. But I do have so much compassion for a guy that has to do that or has one. So understanding what it is and understanding that it doesn't then equate to definitely you can't give a woman pleasure. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to talk about it because again, yeah. if we're not talking about it, then um, we may be shocked or not know about it. And so, right. you know, I, I, it was again, just compassion for the guy. And so the last thing you want is to be in shock. Yes. Um, and I think the the other important thing I want people to take away is don't fake orgasms because you're then giving that guy the yeah, false sense yeah. that he's really great in bed and he's going to take that to all of his other mm. sexual encounters. And so I know we want to make people feel good, but like ultimately, like we want people to be good and to feel good. And so we should be honest with them. Again, not in that moment, mm -hmm. not in that second. Maybe you faked it and you didn't mean to, but be like, hey, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but like I maybe we if you really like the person, like you'd be like, Well, I like you. I want to be sexually pleased by you. And we don't have to. It doesn't have to be with your penis. It can be with other things. I was going to, literally, that was going to be my follow-up. How do you approach that? Because it must be so delicate. It is um, delicate. But... And I think, you know, not everyone can hear that or handle that. But I guarantee you that guy knows that he's not well endowed, has been dealing with his whole life. And so he's not like expecting, you know, I, if he was shocked, then that would just actually tell me that there's something wrong up there for him, right? right like he can't be, right. like, he, he grew up in the same society we did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And one thing I heard you say is that women, just like men, get blue balls, but you call it blue vulva. Yeah. Um, never heard of that. How the hell do women get blue vulva? And if you don't mind explaining to me the difference maybe between blue balls and blue vulva. Absolutely. So let's talk about the basics, right? When you get aroused, what happens is you get increased blood flow to your genitals. And so what we need to know as women is that our clitoris is the exact homologue of the penis. And the scrotum is the exact homologue of the labia majora. So when you're a fetus, those tissues go on to make those respective things. So what becomes a penis in a man becomes a clitoris in a woman. And what becomes a scrotum in a man becomes a labia majora in women or the big lip 
lips to the vagina. And so in both genders, now this hasn't been studied as extensively in women. And I will preface that a lot of the data that we have in sexual health is for men. But what happens generally speaking in terms of physiology is blood flows into that area. It engorges the shaft of the penis or the clitoris of the, of the, of the female. And so that is how you get aroused and it gets very full. It gets very erect and you can have blood flow to the genitals. So in men, the testicles will get blood flow and that will get larger. And similarly in women, the lips of the vagina will get engorged and also fuller with blood. And so when you orgasm, that blood flow then goes back into the body, right? And so if you have a prolonged arousal and you don't get that release, then that blood flow can take longer to leave, giving you that achy discomfort. And for some people, it can be really strong. So there's actually been young men in the ER with strong, sudden onsets of testicular pain. And later you find out that it's just proceeding after arousal. Um, and so really it's just that the pain goes away after about an hour, but it was so bad that this young boy decided to come to the ER, what? right? And so it can be really uncomfortable and it's totally normal. And it's not something to be scared about. It's just knowing what it is and then being able to address that. So whether it's by masturbating or taking a cold shower or even doing like a Valsalva, which is like bearing down, that can actually help get that blood flow moving. And so simply like just kind of um, pushing down, like you're having a bowel movement, but not really pushing down, uh, that can help relieve some of that discomfort. Wow. Thank you for breaking that down. I'd never heard the blue vulva before. So now the next fact is that you can induce your sex dreams by sleep positions. And I've got a, a, a study on that that I'd love to read to you and yeah. then get your thoughts on it. A study found that people who slept face down on their stomach with their arms stretched above their head had more sexual dreams. Yes, that makes sense because we're sitting with our genitals facing the bed, which will rub against the bed over the course of your sleep, right? You're moving, you're, you're sleeping. And so that pressure can cause a reflex of uh, erection or in women's case, clitoral erection. And then that can then induce like that feeling can induce your brain to start thinking about sexual things. Now, it doesn't mean that that's always the case. You will still, everyone, man or woman, will have three to four erectile episodes in their sleep. So you will get an engorged clitoris three or four times at night and men will get an engorged penis or an erection three or four times at night. And that's why men will often wake up with an erection because that's part of, that's part of when they wake up, their REM sleep is at their highest. And that's also correlated with when people get these spontaneous nighttime erections. Wow. And so it's not that they're necessarily turned on. It's just that this is a sort of normal physiologic process. And similarly, women can have that too. And they're not always associated with sexual dreams, but certainly sometimes they can be. Wow. So technically then do women also kind of wake up with a hard on and we just don't see it? Well, actually the interesting thing about this is, well, again, not as much data, but men's erections seem to correlate with their REM cycle mm. differently than women. So actually the timing of when men wake up seems to be more correlated with the erection, whereas in women, it's not necessarily that specific. Oh my God, that's fascinating. I'd love to like know once they do real like deep studies of what that actually is and when that would be for women and thinking about like when we're, you know, back in the caveman days and tribes, it's like a woman 
like how would that benefit a woman versus how would that benefit a guy? I don't know. I, I love thinking about that. Well, I think the one thing for both is that both men and women's testosterone levels highest in the morning, mm. which is correlated with desire, which makes sense. You want both genders who are going to reproduce to have desire at the same time of day. But, you know, it is harder to study women. With men, you can put a little device on there, like a, a circular device on their penis to actually measure the number of times they get erect and how firm they get. Mm. Whereas for women, it's a little bit more challenging to get that same amount of detail because most of the clitoris is internal. Mm. Why out of curiosity is desire the strongest in the morning? Because your testosterone is highest. So our testosterone follows a circadian rhythm. And now desire is complex, right? Oh. But testosterone is one of the large drivers of desire. It's a hormone that we all have. Women have more testosterone than they do estrogen in their bodies. So it's very important. And it's a huge driver of desire. So in the morning, early morning, when your circadian rhythm is starting, starting off, that's when your testosterone is highest and it fluctuates and gets lower throughout the day. Then it has another peak and then goes down again and it's lowest in the evening actually. And so I always tell people like, you know, sometimes having sex in the morning is better or even before dinner because mm. one, you're kind of using your hormones to your advantage. I heard you say that. I'm like, it's so true, especially as a woman. Like, I'm just going to be honest. The last thing I want to do, you know, after having like this big meal is like when you feel kind of bloated and yeah. your tummy's sensitive and you just want to like, you know, hang back. The, that's the last thing I want. I don't yeah. feel sexy at all. Exactly. Um, but because I always think about like the biology is evolved in a way to um, for us to procreate and survive. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that, I think about, okay, if, um, desire comes from testosterone being high in the morning, but then why would testosterone be high in the morning? What is it that, um, and this is more just more of a fascination, mm -hmm. why would that um, be important for us to procreate? in the morning? Well, I don't know that it's the procreation is necessarily supposed to be in the morning, but certainly it's with light, right? Daylight. So mm. you want to be able to see your partner, right? So that's one. But two, testosterone is used for a whole bunch of things, not just desire, right? It helps with muscle mass and movement and, um, and helps you have less fat. And so you think about, you want a big boost of testosterone. So you have the most energy in the morning to go about your day and hunt and gather or, you know, do whatever the things you need to do throughout the day. And then it's going to wean before sleep because then then you're going to rejuvenate your body's testosterone and re-energize yourself overnight. So if someone's listening right now then and they really want to get close with their partner, then doing that in the morning is typically a better solution because then there's no like the wean off of the testosterone throughout the day. I mean, everyone's a little different. Like sure. some people don't love morning sex. And I would say, talk to your partner. Like when are they most turned on? When are you most turned on? And like for some people, like they're like, yeah, I can't have sex after dinner. So like they're just like, I just can't. It's not, I'm not going to perform as well or I'm not going to have, you know, I'm not going to feel good. And so then don't like, if you're someone who's always like, oh, I just make sense to always have it at night because that's what we're told, right, from media. Like, <laughs> everyone's having sex at the end of the day. Everyone's having sex at night. So you sort of internalize that, but maybe that's actually not what turns you on. And so sort of pay attention to your own cues. Like, when do you feel like, oh, I could I could have sex right now, mm -hmm. or wow, that turns me on, um, and sort of kind of figure that out for yourself. Yeah, I think it's um, a super powerful as well in having those conversations with your partner. Mm -hmm. um, I've had massive gut and health issues. And so for me, if I have sugar... I'm done for the night. Mm -hmm. And so me and my husband very much talk about it. It's like, okay, I'm going to have dessert paper. We're going to have to have it this time so that we can have the sex. Right. And we just like kind of plan it versus 
not talking about it, finding yourself not having the sex. And then sadly, you know, the last thing you ever want in a long-term relationship, especially is, is the bed death where yeah. you're not having the sex. Yeah. One thing you brought up, which is so important is planning it, right? A lot. I get a lot of pushback from people who are like, I don't want to plan sex. And I'm like, you don't have to plan sex, but you have to plan time to be intimate. And the reason is, think about when we were younger. We used to go on dates, right? And we used to be like, oh, I'm going to see my partner on Friday. I'm going to get super excited. I'm going to get all dressed up. I'm going to shave. I'm going to do all the things and look really cute for my date. And oh, there might be sex, right? So you sort of like get yourself excited. You get yourself in the mood. And then it's great, right? But now we're with our partners. If you're married and in a monogamous relationship with your partner and you see them all the time, you're like, oh, they're always there. We can have sex anytime. Mm -hmm. But it becomes like, oh, I'm too tired. I'm too this, I'm too stressed. And so you're not prioritizing sex or intimacy, right? Because you're just like, they're always there. Like they're always going to be there. But it's sort of like you have to take the time. People talk about date night and date night's important, but so is time for intimacy. Like actually remembering that like you like holding each other and touching each other and feeling each other. And so like getting into that zone and making it a priority, like we're not going to look at our phones. We're not going to talk about the kids or the work or whatever. And we're just going to be with each other and remember what that feels like can be super powerful. Yeah, I love that. And being very... Um, honest and transparent about exactly what that looks like. So, mm -hmm. so for my husband, I said, babe, I really want some more romance in our lives. And he goes, what does that look like? And I was like, that's a really great question because romance to him could be very different than, I mean, it is. Romance to him is big, big floodlights and, you know, <laughs> like a microscope when we're having sex. Like, you know, but romance to me is dim lights and the candles and the soft music. Mm -hmm. So I just told him, like, this is what I'm looking for. Candles, music, um, and that way you can kind of, you know, they can show up for you. Yeah, um, it's so important to bring that up because, you know, you might think that something is really going to turn your partner on when that's not really what's turning mm -hmm. them on, right? They might not care about the way you're dressed or the way your hair is. Like my, my partner will tell me he likes it when I'm like literally studying and look like a nerd because it just like, he's like, I love that you're like being yourself and I like you. I don't like need you to be done up or something else. And so I think that's really important to realize like, well, that's what turns my partner on and this is what turns me on and let's talk about it. Like even writing down the things that really turn you on or even like desires, like what you wish you could do, whether it's kinky, whether it's not, like things that you've always wanted to try and not, and making a list of those and having your partner make a list of them and then slowly sharing them with each other can be super powerful. Yeah. It does sex really cure headaches? Well, the way that it's, again, it's the orgasm, right? So having a sex to orgasm will actually increase your pain threshold. That's why you've seen maybe on TV shows like uh, have an orgasm when you're trying to have childbirth or like things like that, right? But they do actually reduce the amount of pain you perceive. So they're actually increasing your pain threshold. So yes, absolutely. If you are having a headache and you orgasm and you feel like your headache got better, that may be why. And then there's also a whole bunch of feel-good hormones that are released when you orgasm, mm -hmm. right? And so those, those hormones take over your brain and you're more focused on the feeling good and that will reduce then your pain sensitivity. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business 
this actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Yeah, Yeah, because I have in the past, it's like, okay, well, they say it should be and um, Mm. I found it to be true. I just never knew how and apparently it's something like 60%. If you've even suffered from migraines, 60% of people, um, while if they have, you know, an orgasm, they feel less pain. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes a lot of people will carry around a lot of tension in their pelvic floor and we don't know about it. Right. And so just like people get TMJ, they get Mm. those headaches and they get they clench their jaw at night, but they have no control over it. They're sleeping. Right. Very similarly, people can get tension and their body will hold it in their pelvic floor muscles. So those muscles, instead of being long and relaxed, will get tight and short. And then that can create sort of discomfort and pain. And so when sometimes releasing those muscles can even happen with orgasm. Sometimes that can exacerbate the pain in those people. But in other times, if it's not that bad, sometimes just having the orgasm actually causes this involuntary contraction and then relaxation, which is what they actually need. Mm, so um, in case people don't know what pelvic flooring is, do you mind just explaining? Absolutely. So it's basically a bowl of muscles that's in our pelvis that sits underneath our organs. So underneath our bladder, underneath our rectum, underneath our uterus, underneath our, around our vagina and urethra where we pee from. So all of those 
organs can be affected when you have a tense pelvic floor. And this is, like I said, very underdiagnosed, very common. And actually you can have symptoms like you're going to the bathroom often, you're having constipation, you're having pain with sex, you're having in, in men pain with ejaculation or pain with erections. You're having um, just sort of even like hip discomfort. So all those things can, or lower back pain, all those things can be affected if your pelvic floor is not in alignment. It's actually a huge, important part of our day-to-day -day, like movement activities. And so it's a, it's very powerful and very under-recognized, particularly in men. We don't see it very often or we don't examine it. So women, you can actually feel it very easily through the vaginal canal. So sometimes you'll notice that you feel tense there or someone may say it's very tense like when you get your pelvic exam. But for men, it's most often during a rectal exam that you can feel those muscles and not everyone even really pays attention to them. So I think ultimately they get, it's even less diagnosed in men. Whoa, I didn't know that. And does mm -hmm. it lead to the same results? So like I've heard you say, you know, with women, you can have like leak if you're peeing mm -hmm. and things like mm -hmm. that, if you laugh or sneeze and things like that. What would the man results be compared yeah. to the female? So in, so just to clarify for women, it's more often that they're having urge, like gotta go, gotta go mm. and need to pee. The leakage often happens. Well, it can happen both ways, but more commonly it's because the pelvic floor is weak. When it's tight, sometimes it, they can leak when they cough or sneeze because those muscles aren't able to squeeze anymore to hold it in when they cough or sneeze. But more often they're feeling gotta go, gotta go. They're going all the time to the bathroom and they're feeling the strong urge. And the same exact thing can happen to men. I think now that there's more and more anxiety, more and more stress in society, like we're seeing it even more in patients. During COVID, I saw so much of it because people were sitting all the time on those muscles and they weren't moving or walking or using those muscles. And so they develop dysfunction from that. And particularly in women, we'll see it because a lot of young girls will have urine holding behavior. So they'll, they'll hold their urine for like all day at school and they're holding, holding, holding. And that's, they're actually on like clenching those muscles to keep it held. And so then they do that over and over and over and over again for years for, for some women that can be a problem or like nurses or even surgeons or teachers who don't get a chance to go to the bathroom very often, hairdressers. Like these are people who will often come to me with these problems because they literally don't have time to pee or they don't make time to pee because they're so busy all the time. It never dawned on me that it'd be attached to also a profession. Mm -hmm. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. All right, now we're going to go over some lies, homie, that we've been told and that we're going to debunk right now. So if you have too much sex as a woman, you get a loose vagina. False, 100% <laughs> false. So as you mentioned, we are so adaptable, right? Your vagina will lengthen and elongate and widen to accommodate a phallus and it will go back to normal. And the number of partners you have is not going to change that. Now, you know, you can get weaker pelvic floors. It's not from having too much sex. It's usually from having too many babies, having a job where you stand for long periods of time and you're always stressing out those muscles, um, having a chronic cough, having neurologic conditions. So there's a lot of things that can, or genetics that can cause a weak pelvic floor, which will make it feel less or more capacious, so to speak, mm. but it's not because of how many partners you've had. So when they say that, you know, the phrase like, oh, she's loose, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like, I think a reference to she's had a lot of sex. And so that's made her vagina loose. It's complete bullshit. It's bullshit. Fuck yeah, girl. Thank you yeah. for saying that. But having babies does loosen it, I assume. Yes. So having multiple babies, large babies puts you at higher risk. It doesn't mean that it's always mm -hmm. going to happen. Mm -hmm. It just puts you at higher risk. 
So this craziness of like um, doctors I've heard where they like add a stitch. I actually heard somebody mm. recently, God, I wish I could remember who it was, but they said to me that they heard a story, someone they knew where the doctor turned around and asked the, said to the husband, I did an extra stitch for you. Oh, that's horrible. That is horrible. No, we don't need extra stitches. They can create so much pain and discomfort. Mm. So please, no extra stitches. And if you are a man and you are in the room with your wife when she's getting stitched up or your partner, do not open your mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep it shut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do not. And I'll speak for the woman. God, can that, I mean, that's even a more horrifying yes. when it's yes. the woman's like, body. Just, just be like, oh my God, I'm so glad you push out our baby and I love you. Aww, like that, those yeah. are the words that you should say. <laughs> yeah. Keep repeating those words. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, okay. So what about the lie about how we pop our cherries? Yes, that's a good one. So the hymen is essentially a, a band of tissue. It does not cover the entire vaginal canal. If you can think about, that's what people think it is, right? There's like this, this like film that you pop through, but you wouldn't have a period if you had a film that you didn't pop through until you had sex, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a band of tissue there and that is often um, stretched through a variety of things, through exercise, through horseback riding, through any, any variety of things. And usually the reason people bleed during their first time of intercourse is because, um, let's be real, the first time people have sex, it's usually not very skilled or, 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 or people don't know what to do. And there's probably not enough arousal. There's probably too much rush to get to penetration. There's, too, there's no lubricant, whatever it is, right? And they're stretching and tearing and bleeding. And yes, you can sort of uh, get towards the hymen and cause some discomfort or, or, or bleeding because the hymen tissue is more friable, but you're not popping anyone's cherry. Like it's probably already been um, stretched and pulled long before you were there. <laughs> yeah. So the whole rumors, I mean, there was um, like a lot of religious people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if it still happened, but I know the Greeks used to, I know the Jewish community do. Um, but it was like, well, if you didn't bleed on your wedding night, it mm -hmm. meant that you had already sinned. Yes, it's horrible. It's it's so horrible. I mean, there's there's definitely countries around the world where they'll like check. They'll like have them go to the gynecologist and get checked for the presence of hymenal tissue, which is horrible and sad. And I can't even imagine the number of women that have been wrongfully accused of a whole variety of things that were not true. Yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about the myth that the longer the sex, the better? So I think um, that really depends on you, but the average length of sex is about five or so minutes. Um, that's penetrative sex. Now, what do you describe as sex, right? That includes foreplay, that includes oral sex, that includes other types of sex that you might be performing. So it's really individual, right? So like some people like this long leisurely experience where they're like having a lot of foreplay. They may have oral, they may have penetrative, they may have anal. They may do a whole host of things. If you're doing anal, make sure you use a different condom or, mm. or wash off before you go vaginal. But generally like but we take a whole host of things and they enjoy that. And that's great. But some people like it to be quick and done. And, you know, I got my orgasm. I feel good. We had our connection and I can go to sleep or go on with my day or do whatever it is. And so I think ultimately it's very individualized. Some people like it. Some people don't. Like I've had patients tell me, like, I just, I feel like it's too much. It's too long. And my partner wants to do all this because they feel like that's what I need. And so again, got to talk about it. 
going back to the performance thing, whereas if guys think that women want it first, so in fact, do you know the stats on like how long average a woman actually wants it and then how yes. long a guy actually wants it? So on average, I think it's around 20, 25 minutes women say, but that's again, the whole encounter and men think it's about 16 minutes. And so again, the reality of penetrative sex is shorter and um, for average, again, it can range from 0.1 minute to like 52 <laughs> minutes based on the studies. Um, but it's really variable, but ultimately like it's about what you feel is sufficient for you and your partner. Yeah. So it's not about trying to go as long as possible to be a stud in the room because that is just completely forced that each, everyone wants that. Yes. Not everybody wants that. Yeah. I heard you say that one of the biggest myths out there is that sex should always be mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And you said, no, like mediocre sex actually is needed and is fine. Yes. I mean, it's impossible. Are we mind blowing at everything we do every time? Like, no, <laughs> we're not. We're not. We mess up or things are funny or weird or whatever. Like sex is, is like a very intimate moment and lots of weird things can happen. You can fart, you can do whatever. Like it may not be always hot and sexy and perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because it's a part of, again, being vulnerable and intimate with your partner. Things are going to be okay sometimes. And sometimes they're going to be great. But like, if you expect every single sexual encounter to be mind-blowing, you're going to be woefully disappointed. Mm -hmm. And then you're just going to take that with you into that relationship and be like, man, our sex sucks. But that's just normal. Like, if you're with someone long enough, you are going to have mediocre sex. That's just part of it. And that's just okay. It doesn't mean that your relationship is in danger or trouble. Yeah. Um, I watched a video of yours where you talk about um, like penis shapes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like kind of the myth, I guess, growing up was always like, no, you know, penises are straight and there's something wrong if it's a, there's a bend. And mm -hmm. um, so talk to me about that again, just trying to educate us women that may not know the differences um, so that we can be prepared. Yes. So the, the large number of penises are not straight. The majority of penises have some slight curvature to them. And that's completely normal. And some people will have more curvature due to conditions like Peyronie's disease, which is like you get a plaque on the penis and they actually become curved. Now, that's a condition that can be corrected if desired. Now, not everyone wants to correct it and it's not dangerous, but it certainly can be off-putting for the person who has it because they've been looking at their penis their whole life and it now looks different. But if you are on the receiving end of that and that's your partner and it doesn't bother you, please reassure them because they are super stressed about it. Like they've been looking at their penis their whole life. And when they see something change, like they are devastated. This is like a huge problem. So if you are a partner of someone who's going through that, the best thing you can do is support them and tell them like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. We can still have sex. We can still do other things if you can. I mean, sometimes it's so bad that you can't, but for the most part, a lot of times you still can. And so if you can make reassure them that you're not bothered by it, um, it may be helpful. Mm. Thank you for breaking that down. I think that, again, gives us a lot more compassion for guys. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about the difference between a circumcised penis and a non-circumcised. And I want to touch on this because behind the scene, right, as women, we women talk a lot. Like, I don't think, sometimes my husband walks by when he hears us women all together and he's like, I can't believe the discussions you guys have. He's like, you guys are way more raunchier than us guys. And I was like, I know. Um, and so I actually had a whole conversation with a bunch of girlfriends of mine and we were talking about the difference between, a, um, you know, a, a circumcised and non-circumcised. And then I'm going to be honest about like, how do you treat them differently? Like, mm -hmm. what are the rules around them? And then um, for people that may not know, if you don't mind explaining the difference, 
Yes. So it's a good question. And you know, to your point about women talking more about stuff in general, we talk about stuff all the time as women. Guys don't talk about their organs, their genitals, their sex lives, except to boast maybe like some guys do that, which, you know, whatever, but men don't talk about it. So like it's, it's a real difference in genders, but I will say in terms of circumcision. So a circumcision is when you remove redundant foreskin from the penis. So when they're erect, you probably can't tell the difference. It's more about when they're flaccid, where you will see foreskin or skin covering the head of the penis. And I will tell you a lot of women in the U S don't see a lot of uncircumcised Mm. penises because the U.S. is more likely to circumcise. I'm not going to get into the the beliefs behind circumcision, but I will tell you that the data shows that there's no difference in terms of sexual satisfaction, um, erection, uh, sensation in compared to uncircumcised and circumcised men. Really? So there's actually been very good, rigorous studies that I've looked at, like. 40,000 men of which half were uncircumcised, half were circumcised. They've compiled all these different studies and found that really there's no difference. But ultimately, I think, you know, every individual's person, uh, every individual's experience with circumcision is different. So I don't want to minimize anyone who feels like they may have issues with sensation. But ultimately, Mm. for a woman to know is that, yes, there is redundant foreskin. It can be removed. The reason oftentimes people will do it is because um, there is a lower risk of HPV with um, uncircumcised penises and a, a basically virtually no risk of penile cancer, which is a very uncommon mm-hmm. cancer in general when you get circumcised. So in terms of like, how do you treat them differently? For the man who has the circum- uncircumcised penis, you have to you know pull back the foreskin and clean the head of the penis um, every day when you shower. You don't need soap or anything, you just use water in your finger, but you do need to sort of clean under there. Similarly, women have a clitoral hood. And a lot of us actually don't look at that, look at it and pull it back because women, just like men can get smegma underneath their, if you've heard of smegma, it's like this cottage cheesy type material that can kind of get underneath the foreskin. Women can get it too underneath the hood of the clitoris and it can actually cause discomfort and, and sometimes even pain. And so, um, you know, some women may want to actually like gently pull their clitoral hood back if they're having discomfort to just make sure there's nothing there. Um, they can even get adhesions and they can stick to the head of the clitoris. Um, so basically that's the big thing for men with circumcised, uncircumcised penis is just making sure you have good hygiene so that nothing, no inflammation builds up there because that's essentially the precursor to, um, for many, many years, if you have inflammation, you can get penile cancer. Mm. So that's the big thing in terms of like hygiene, care, health, right? That's the big mm. one. Um, ultimately in terms of like, how you interact with them sexually, there should be no difference. It's just like, if you see one, don't be like, you know, it's, (laughs) I guess don't be like, (laughs) like, just be like, okay, that's, you know, that's a variation on normal, right? And that's in, again, like you said, in the US, you can probably go with many partners and not find an uncircumcised penis. And so it can be alarming for some people, but like the worst thing you want to do is like push someone to get a circumcision if they don't want to, Mm -hmm. um, because that is not something that's mandatory or required. And if someone's happy with their uncircumcised penis, please don't ever push them to do so um, unless they're having infections, recurrent infections or pain because of the foreskin. Mm. And then in regards to this, uh, you said the sensitivity is the same, but then as a woman, I'm just going to, you know, if I can be a bit graphic for a second in treating it, if you're like, you know, playing with it, do you have to be more sensitive to it? Like to be a bit of 
more gentle um or is it like no it's exactly the same women don't have to worry it's literally no so worry. the the most nerve endings on the the penis that have a lot of sensation is right under the corona so the ridge of the penis like the of the head that's where most of the nerve endings are but the foreskin is like much more than that and the the, the nerve endings on the foreskin are just like the tip of your finger so they actually have less nerve endings than the tip of your finger so it's really more so like they're, they're very sensitive around the ridge of the head the head the glands and the ridge of the head, that's a very sensitive area for men. Um, but the foreskin itself, um, the majority of the foreskin is just like your finger. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for breaking that down. Mm -hmm. For anyone listening, it's one of these things that like, if you don't have your girlfriends to just ask, or, you know, obviously I'm very fortunate to be able to sit in front of someone like you and ask these questions. So hopefully that brought value to people just in case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've gone over so many facts and datas and myths and stuff. What do you think is like the biggest misconception right now out there that's actually setting people up um, wrong to have intimacy and build their relationship? I think the biggest misconception is that sex is like what you see on porn. Mm -hmm. And I think people, I have no problem with people watching pornography in a healthy way, but I think when people watch it, especially younger kids, now we know that it's much more difficult to get access to porn, right? Kids can look at their friend's phone or whatever, and we're finding the average age of a boy getting um, exposed, and even girls, is like eight. Whoa! Yeah. So really, really young. And so um, I've been open about this. I, I talked to my son about what he might see and what he, um, what he, if he finds has questions about it, that he should ask me. And that this is not, this is a movie, and it's not true life. It's not real life. It's not what real life is like. And so that you know, and if he feels like this compulsion to watch it over and over again, to please talk to me because it's not that's not safe. And so I think ultimately that's what concerns me is that young men are seeing this as a representation of what sex should be like and what they should perform like and what their partner should react like. And that's not reality. And so when they go to have their first sexual encounter, it's nothing like that. And then they're even more insecure and they're bringing that, you know, into their next encounter or whatever. And so it's causing a lot of issues in people who really can't see that separation because their brain's not fully developed yet, you know, and they just, they don't, they can't tell the difference. Oh my God. What do you think that that's teaching young women? I mean, you know, there've been like, I think Billie Eilish has been like open about her porn addiction. Oh, like there's, she? there's been, um, some people who really have found themselves getting, uh, you know, like really addicted to porn and not everyone does. And it's actually a small subset of people that do. So I want to be clear, like, I don't have a problem with porn. I think it's safe to watch if you're, you know, you can separate the distinction between reality and is that what you mean when you said earlier healthy? Yeah, and that you're not, again, doing it at the detriment of like spending time with your partner, doing normal things, um, being productive or being with your partner like intimately. And so as long as it's not conflicting with those things and you're using it for entertainment, it's totally fine. But again, there's that blurred line where you don't know if it's entertainment versus is it real? Is it true life? And is this what real life is like where I think the, really the damage comes in? And for, I'm just thinking also like from a young girl's like, uh, confidence and self-esteem like mm -hmm. if we're seeing these uh these acts where women are just like oh they're, they're so confident they're just flinging their body around is that making women um either less confident do you think or is that actually making them more um uh what's the word more sexual I think it depends. I think one is like, uh, oftentimes they'll be like, why is my body not reacting like that? Why am I not orgasming immediately after penetration, right? Like why, uh, why does it not look like that? And I think that's the 
bigger problem. And sure, it's it's good to be exposed to a variety of things. And like, maybe you'll find something you find interesting that you would not have otherwise. And maybe there is some sexual exploration there. But I think more of that comes from self-exploration than watching pornography. And women tend to watch pornography less. They tend to listen to erotica more than they'll watch pornography. But how does that then um, echo into potential relationships? So like, how is porn and porn addiction and how accessible and easy it is at such a young age. How is that impacting relationships? Because I'm definitely hearing now, especially from the young guys, there seems to be a sex recession. And growing up for me, it was, you know, women try to hold back and, you know, guys were always approaching. But now it seems like guys are actually specifically choosing to not have sex. So what is happening to the world? How do you think that that then echoes into relationships as people start to um, go from, you know, maybe the first date to then seeking a full-time relationship? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. So one, and again, this is not necessarily proven in data. This is sort of like my speculation. But I think one, with COVID, there became a real heightened awareness of infectious disease. So people are nervous about that. I think two, yes, the accessibility of porn makes it seem like you can have access to sex, even though it's not you having sex very easily without having to go to approach a woman, get rejected potentially, and, and you know, continue that process. Whereas when we were younger, like that was the only way you were going to get sex. Even to watch porn, you had to find a VCR and a tape <laughs> or you had to find a magazine, right? Like, and you had to hide it somewhere. You had to find a room where nobody was to like actually participate in looking at those things. Whereas now it's just like too accessible. Mm. And so I think ultimately, yes, that's part of it. I think there's also just changes in gender roles potentially, whereas like, you know, they may not know how to approach a woman in today's society because it's definitely evolving. And it's sort of like difficult for like the dads don't know how to counsel their sons on how to like approach a woman because it's so different than the way they used to approach women now and how receptive women will be. So I think there's a lot of factors in terms of that. And hopefully it will, uh, equilibrate, you know, over time as, as people start realizing that there is this issue and that for the sake of society, we need to continue having sex and having babies, right? I will just add that I think women, we tend to like just take a lot of stress and we don't actually seek help when we need to. A lot of women with bladder issues like leakage, prolapse, sexual pain, like pain with sex, um, all of those things, decreased desire. And for years, it will go on for 10, 15, 20 years before they finally seek help because one, they're too busy taking care of everyone else. They don't make themselves a priority. They just say, it's okay. I can just live like this. I'll get around to it. But then then you realize like so many years of your life are gone. And so it's so important to take the next step and seek help if you are struggling. Like if you're leaking and you don't like it, see a doctor. If you're having issues with your sex life and you don't like it, see a doctor. If you feel like you're you're going through menopause and you don't like how you feel, like go see a doctor. There's so many things that we can do to help you to get your quality of life better. And there's no reason to suffer in silence. And, you know, worst case scenario, you don't click with that person, don't give up. Like you may see see someone and not like them or feel like their information doesn't jive with you, that doesn't mean it wasn't meant to be. It just means that you didn't like that one person. So move on and see someone else. We're so lucky in the United States that you can like 
you know, take, you can see whoever you want. There's no gatekeepers to seeing a doctor, seeing a specialist of some kind to get help. I'm glad you said that because a lot of women that I know and, you know, my audience have said that they do sometimes, right? I'm going to go get the courage to go to the doctor. And the doctor turns around and goes, there's nothing wrong with you, you're normal, you know, or it's just like, are you sure it's not in your head? And so you end up, I'm hearing more and more about how doctors, some, some doctors, of course, not everybody, um, can gaslight you oh, into absolutely. thinking that, no, 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 you're totally normal when actually your body is screaming that something is wrong. A hundred percent. And like we did a study looking at um, Reddit threads on low libido and uh, for women in particular, and so many women, like the, one of the biggest themes was that they went to the doctor and they got dismissed and they were on these medications that were are clearly linked with low libido, but nobody even picked it up. People do have their areas of expertise. So sometimes you might go, all you have access to is the urologist in your neighborhood and they may not know anything about sexual dysfunction or they may not, or the gynecologist may not know anything about menopause or not want to treat it or whatever it is. And I think the thing is like, don't feel like that's the end of the road. And not all doctors are the same. Not all people are the same. And thank God for the internet because you can actually go on and find quality education now. And it's kind of difficult to find quality education, but really sort of like doing your own vetting. Like, are these people like giving quality content? Are they giving resources? Are they giving references to the studies they're talking about? And then you know, okay, they're actually taking their data from real sources. They're giving human studies, human data. They're telling you what we know. And like, yeah, if so, for example, if my patient comes to me with an issue and they're like, I really don't want to take medication, I'm still going to work with them to get them to where they want to be. I may try to educate them on what these medications do and how they could help them, but I'm never going to push anyone to do that. And if I don't know, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm going to say, I don't know. And, you know, this is your experience. It's super important. And hopefully I will help you find someone who can help you with that issue. And so I think that's really the key is like not feeling like, yeah, they may say you're physiologically, everything is fine. Your blood work looks fine. Your body looks fine. That doesn't mean that everything is fine. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you are still experiencing something that's real and is worthy of attention. Yeah. I'm glad you said that like don't dismiss your body don't ignore it I did it for so long I was just listening blindly to the doctors and so they were like oh no take this pill I just I was so eager to find the like the the solve that I would just listen blindly even if my body was saying something opposite so how do you know then the difference between what your body needs then and then what a doctor is telling you because I always find this hard because it's like you you've got the education, you may not have then had the experience in this thing but if they're saying you're normal like how do you pass the difference between how you're feeling and what the doctor's actually telling you. Well, I think the issue is, and it happens a lot, like there's plenty of things we don't know. Like we're not perfect, what, right? right? Yeah. So like I will have a patient, I've, I've had patients come in who've got pain like in their flank, for example. And I'll be like, well, I did your CT scan. There's nothing there. There's nothing on your exam. It doesn't mean that you're not experiencing pain. It just means that I can't find a reason for that pain that's urologic in nature. Now, could it be muscle pain? Could it be that your body is telling you you have pain there, but it's actually stress or something else? I don't know. Right? But like, ultimately, I think just knowing that like your experience of your body is real. It's completely real. Yes, we can rule out things. That's what we can definitely do as doctors. I can definitely say there is no kidney stone causing this pain. I can definitely say that there is no mass in your vagina. I can definitely say, right, that your pelvic floor muscles today on this exam seem normal, but I can't tell you what your experience is day to day. Oh, everyone needs a doctor like you, Rina Malik. 
Thank you. Where can people find you and all the amazing things you're doing? Your videos are freaking fire. You Thank are you. just literally changing the world with the education that you're giving. So where can people go to follow you? Yes. So they can follow me on any social media platform at Rena Malik MD, but YouTube is where most of my videos are. Um, I also have a podcast there called the Rena Malik MD podcast. And if you want to see me as a patient, I'm in Newport Beach and Beverly Hills. Um, so you can make an appointment to see me or virtually. I, I have like eight states I'm licensed in. Wow. So happy to see you.